This is the multi-voice text-to-speech podfic reading of Night by Night, I Let You Eat Me Alive by Emery Hall, composed by Burning Aurora. Remus Lupin, eleven years old, is absolutely horrified the day he sorted into Gryffindor House. He'd crossed his index and middle fingers on both hands and thought, Slytherin, 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 over and over again. But then the sorting hat asked him what he wanted to do with his life and he'd said, Solve crime. And the damn hat shouted out, Gryffindor. Now, had the hat stuck around a bit longer and heard the completion of that thought, Sir, I can murder and eat criminals. It might have answered Remus's prayers and dumped him into Slytherin. Then again, it might have called out, St. Brutus's secure center for incurably criminal boys. That would have been a first at Hogwarts, as well as rather ironic, since Remus would have adored attending St. Brutus's. He'd wanted Slytherin House because he'd heard from his dad, and learned through his five years working, off the books, as a crime-fighting wolf for the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, that all of the most criminal witches and wizards are Slytherins. He would have been a fox in a hen house. But no, he sighs, magics his trunk with a thump to the foot of a four-poster, and flops onto the horrid red and gold bedding in his new dorm room. When his roommates enter, he pulls a pillow over his head and refuses to respond to their friendly hellos and introductions. First a James Potter greets him. Obnoxiously chummy and bland. Remus kicks at his sheets in frustration. Then a Peter Pettigrew. That one has some potential, but his dad has told him it's not okay to encourage people down paths of criminality merely so that he can kill and eat them. Pettigrew will have to corrupt himself. Remus pushes the pillow harder into his face, trying to smother the scent of James's odious goodness. Then the door to the dorm room opens a third time and Remus Lupin sits bolt upright, face pillow forgotten, as the pale boy with long dark hair flicks his trunk into their room with a haughty wave of his wand and extends his hand. I'm serious black. Remus's mouth falls open as he breathes in. This one has killed. He is so gobsmacked by the presence of Black that he fails to shake his hand, just staring and smelling. He shuts his eyes, inhales deeply, exhales with a huff. When he opens them again, the young, delectable criminal is watching him like he's mental. He leaps out of bed and shoves past him. He must get to the Aori. In the Aori, he dashes off a quick note to his dad. Dear Dad, criminal in my dorm room. Can I kill him? Love, Remus. He fidgets, nervous with excitement, waiting for his dad's reply. But eventually the aroma of dinner wafts up from the great hall and he decides he might as well eat regular food while he waits. In the great hall, he briefly looks longingly at the Slytherin table. So much potential, but it would be suspicious to sit there, and his dad has taught him to stay above suspicion, so he settles in next to his new roommates at the Gryffindor table and pokes at the food on his plate, scooting the mashed potatoes and peas as far from the lamb as possible, spearing the lamb with his fork and inspecting it for blood. Sadly, it is medium well done. His mum would never cook lamb like this. Actually, she would never bother cooking Remus's lamb chop at all since he'd only sit there pouting. Ever since he was bitten, he ceased to be one of those kids you could tempt into eating their dinner with the promise of dessert. No, dessert was a punishment. He would only eat dessert if offered maybe some nice offal. Are you going to eat that? Black asks, 
pointing with his knife at the peas and mashed potatoes. Two wonderfully wild thoughts fly through Remus's head. Firstly, that Black is extending his arm and asking Remus if he's going to eat the arm, and Remus thinks yes. Yes, please. When he realizes that's probably not the case, he then thinks Black might be threatening him with the knife, in which case it would be entirely within his rights to kill and eat him. Sadly, his brain comes around to the logical conclusion that Black merely wants his nasty vegetables, so he scrapes them wordlessly onto Black's plate, lifts the chop to his mouth, and gnaws on one end of it. Potter looks on in horror. What? There couldn't possibly be blood dripping down his face from chewing on this shoe leather. It's then that the owl arrives. Remus unscrolls the parchment like he's ripping into a Christmas present only to read. Dear Remus, are you sure? Eleven is awfully young for criminal behavior. Please write back with his name so I can look his family up in the department files. Under no circumstances are you permitted to kill him. An education from Hogwarts is an important step in your crime wolf career. If you kill a fellow student, you could be expelled, and your mother and I would be disappointed. Love, Dad. P.S. Remember to use me instead of can. It's me I kill him not can I kill him. Ooh. You got a letter. Black says, attempting to snatch it from his hands. Remus immediately dunks the letter in his pumpkin juice, then shoves it in his mouth, chewing thoroughly before swallowing. Black, Pettigrew, and Potter stare. Before going to bed he sends another note to his dad. Serious Black. Lying in his bed, the scent of Black's criminality drifts towards him making him salivate. He soothes himself by thinking. All I have to do is come of age. Once he's seventeen, then he's his own man and no one, not his dad, not Dumbledore, can tell him he can't kill and eat Sirius Black. It all started five years ago with the Pomeranian incident. Well, maybe it started six years ago when he was bitten by Fenrir Greyback and turned into a werewolf. Or his parents might say it started four years ago with the robbery incident. In any case, four to six years ago, Remus Lupin developed a taste for blood. The Pomeranian incident wasn't really his fault. His family lived in a small two-bedroom flat in London, nearish to the Ministry for Lyle's work, and a two-bedroom flat is no place to house a werewolf, even a baby one. His dad affixed bars to his bedroom window, and every full moon for about a year, they emptied the room of furniture, bolted the door, and put the Beach Boys' summer days and summer nights on the record player at full volume to drown out his howling and thumping. On one of those summer nights, August 1, 1966 to be precise, it was just so damn hot in the flat that Hope Lupin propped their door open while she cooked in the kitchen, humming along to help me, Rhonda. It had been nearly a year since Remus was bitten and his parents hadn't quite realized that their little wolf boy was gaining in strength. The hollow corridor separating his bedroom from the hallway was no longer a match for his teeth and claws. He chewed and scratched and eventually launched a small wolf-shaped hole right through the door. Had the door to their flat not been propped open, he might have merely wreaked havoc on the home, but instead, he tore out of the flat and down the two flights of stairs leading from their apartment to the building's entrance. Again, it was a warm summer night, so their neighbor, Bob, had propped the door to the building open with an old brick, so he could sit on the steps smoking. He took a sip from his Stella right as Remus bolted out the entrance, rounding the corner from the stairwell so fast that his claws lost traction on the linoleum, 
and he skidded, tumbling down the steps to freedom. Bob gawked at the Lupin's escaped husky, thought about alerting them, but decided he'd finish his ciggy first. Remus's tongue lolled. He chased a squirrel. He chased a pigeon. Fortunately, the Lupins lived in Zone 4, so the neighborhood was essentially suburbia even though it called itself London, so he didn't encounter anyone on the sidewalks until he ran into the boy walking the Pomeranian. It wasn't the Pomeranian that interested him. It was the boy. The boy had shaved the sides of his head and wore a shiny tracksuit, and he smelled divine. The Pomeranian was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Remus lunged at the boy and that little yippee puff of a thing decided to defend its owner. Either that or it just had a screw loose. It barked like mad, bouncing on its toes with excitement, baring its tiny teeth at Remus, and well, Remus is a wolf. A wolf is an undomesticated dog. Dogs are pack animals. Packs have hierarchies. In a wolf versus Pomeranian showdown, a wolf, even a cub, is an alpha and a Pomeranian is a beta. A hyperactive beta needs to be put in its place. Remus killed and ate most of the Pomeranian. Again, he wasn't really interested in the Pomeranian. Had the boy stuck around instead of running away in terror, Remus might have gone for him too, but instead he inhaled the traces of the boy's delicious smell and snacked on Pomeranian. By the time Bob told the Lupins and the Lupins located their puppy, Remus was satiated and mostly rolled about on his back trying to get a belly rub, but there was a lot of blood on his muzzle and no one seemed particularly inclined to pet him. Fortunately, when animal control stopped by the flat the next day, having received a complaint from a neighbor that the Lupins's husky had mauled Princess, their Pomeranian, the Lupins had no husky, just a six-year-old boy. Oh, we had him put down. Lyle scratched his head awkwardly. Good idea. You shouldn't have a dog like that in a house with a small child, the officer said. Remus stared up at him with wide, innocent gold-brown eyes. Will the owners press charges? Oh, I shouldn't think so. Their son has a bit of a record, if you know what I mean. The officer tapped the side of his nose. Thereafter his parents soundproofed Remus's room with egg crates, foam, and old mattresses and installed a solid wood door. However, by the time he was seven, solid wood was no longer strong enough to contain Remus. Lucky for his parents, as it turned out. The night of the robbery incident, they'd locked him away in his padded room and Hope was taking a casserole out of the oven, humming along to California girls, when two men entered their flat, one wearing a knitted cap with holes cut for eyes, and the other with a pair of women's nylons over his face. They tied up Remus's parents and Lord knows what they might have done. Stolen the telly or something, but at that moment, their seven-year-old werewolf son chewed his way through his bedroom door, stood bristling in the hallway for a moment, made a beeline for the front entrance, discovered it closed, and then caught the unmistakable scent of evil. Hope and Lyle Lupin watched their seven-year-old boy maul two grown men to death, eat approximately two-thirds of one and gnaw a bit on the other's ankle. He showed no interest in attacking his parents. Once he was full, he flopped on his side, laying his head in Hope's lap and whining because she wouldn't scratch his ears, which was only because her hands were still tied behind her back. Lyle and Hope had to wait until sunrise when their little werewolf transformed back into a boy to talk him through untying them both, 
at which point they'd spent the night bound together, bolt upright, two mutilated corpses on the floor beside them, and their son, his leg twitching in his sleep, dreaming about chasing bad guys. They'd had a lot of time to talk, and it occurred to Lyle Lupin that maybe having a werewolf son wasn't such a bad thing. So far Remus had saved them from two robbers and rid the world of a yippie purse dog. Maybe rather than deny his werewolf nature, they ought to put it to good use. Lyle was working in the department for the regulation and control of magical creatures and had, for some time, really since Greyback bit his son, been feeling like a bit of a fraud, rather like working for the National Drugs Intelligence Unit while your child deals horse and smokes angel dust. Although that's not entirely accurate. It's more like he'd begun to question the effectiveness of regulating and controlling magical creatures, rather like doubting the efficacy of reefer madness in dissuading teens from smoking marijuana. It was time to get out. There were bigger fish to fry and he had a secret weapon, rather like throwing a grenade into a pond to catch fish. Remus John Lupin He put in his transfer to the Department of Magical Law Enforcement and soon rose through the ranks with his ability to sniff out quite literally, bad guys. He helped Remus hone his criminal detection skills so that he could smell a killer even while in his human form. Of course, Remus was seven at the time and required bribery to stay focused. Lyle offered him ice cream and toys, but by that point, Remus had already tasted Pomeranian, which, again, was really just a poor substitute for the Pomeranian's owner, and burglar, and wanted nothing to do with sweets, and G.I. Joe's. He wanted a snack, preferably a meal, and Lyle figured, what the hell? Really, would you rather be eaten by a werewolf or sent to Azkaban? Remus began eagerly assisting his dad in cases and developed an appetite for raw meat, rare, if it had to be cooked for the sake of propriety. Fortunately or unfortunately, it wasn't long before Lyle Lupin's boss cottoned on to his son's involvement in his day job. It probably had something to do with the novelty mug Remus, and Hope made him for Father's Day, which read, I would kill to be your son, in a child's Crayola handwriting with pictures of Remus and Lyle. Only, one of the pictures happened to be Remus smiling brightly, his two front teeth missing, but still making short work of a fresh body. It was no doubt a mistake to include that picture. When Lyle confessed that his now eight-year-old son was the real reason behind his 100% solved case file record, Nobby Leach, then Minister for Magic, might have fired him, but instead it occurred to the minister that there could be more practical uses for such a valuable tool as a crime-fighting werewolf, and a child at that, in other words, malleable. The Magical Congress of the United States of America had been begging the British Ministry of Magic for some assistance in taming their rampant serial killer population, several of whom were, unbeknownst to muggles, wizards, hence their ability to elude muggle authority. Minister Leach thought it might be worthwhile to curry favor with this new world superpower intent on amassing nuclear weapons, so rather than fire Lyle Lupin, he asked whether he would be willing to loan his son to the Magical Congress of the United States Department of Magical Law Enforcement to assist in apprehending the Zodiac Killer. It was either agree or lose his job, so Lyle agreed. Plus he thought Remus might enjoy the experience. Remus was trained by the Makuza, the CIA and the FBI in crime detection, and participated in the tracking of several of the most notorious serial killers of the 1960s 
including Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, and the Boston Strangler. Very few people know that, not only was the Zodiac Killer captured, it was due to the tireless efforts of then 10-year-old Remus Lupin, Crime Wolf. The case is only listed as unsolved on account of there being no body, or at least no recognizably human body. Remus caught the Zodiac Killer on the night of a full moon, and by the time the CIA reached them, only the killer's right hand remained. They were able to confirm that he was indeed the Zodiac Killer through fingerprint technology, but they could not very well inform the public they'd caught the killer with the assistance of a child werewolf wizard who then ate 95% of the body. So the CIA to this day maintains the case is unsolved and even went so far as to send fake letters from the killer years after Remus made a meal of him. All of this came to a screeching halt in March of 1971 when Remus turned 11 and received a letter from headmaster Albus Dumbledore welcoming him to Hogwarts in the fall. Hope and Lyle were shocked. They had never expected their werewolf son would be permitted to attend a wizarding school. They considered the crime-fighting training assurance for his future. He would never be fully accepted into wizarding society. He'd be discriminated against, unable to hold down jobs, but if they made him necessary, even off the books necessary, to the Ministry of Magic, well, then he'd always have some security. When Dumbledore arrived at the Lupin's flat to discuss the precautions taken at Hogwarts for housing a werewolf during the full moon, namely a violent tree and a shack, he was shocked to discover a scarfry, curly-haired, bright-eyed, pleasant, if rather unsocialized boy. The few werewolves he had encountered looked rather beaten, scarred, and haggard, but not Remus Lupin. You look remarkably healthy, Dumbledore noted. Why wouldn't I be healthy? Remus wondered. Many werewolves attack themselves during the full moon. Why would I attack myself when I could attack a bad guy? Hope and Lyle exchanged a glance. What do you mean attack a bad guy? Lyle felt obligated to explain that Remus had been trained by the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, the MACUSA, the CIA, and the FBI in the detection and disposal of killers. What do you mean by disposal? Dumbledore asked. Well, he wasn't trained so much in disposal per se, as he took disposal upon himself. Dumbledore frowned. But he was a very liberal-minded chap, so he agreed that Remus could still attend Hogwarts, despite his murder record, as long as he didn't kill anyone whilst at school. What about during the summers? Remus asked. An owl arrives from his dad the next morning at Hogwarts. Dear Remus, you may be on to something. The Department of Magical Law Enforcement has had her eye on the Black family for some time but we have been unable to indisputably prove their involvement in any crimes. Please watch the serious black, but, I repeat, do not kill him. Love, Dad. Remus eats this letter as well, mostly out of precaution, and honestly it doesn't taste much different than the horrible porridge they're serving for breakfast. It's only his first year at Hogwarts, and yet Remus is already counting down the days until March of his sixth year when he will be of age and can make his own decisions about whom he kills. In the meantime, he will follow his dad's advice and keep an eye on this black fellow. Remus has very little to report from these early years. When not in class, he spends his time developing an elaborate map to track serious black's movements throughout the castle. Unfortunately, Potter and Black nearly get a hold of it 
so he has to charm the damn thing to report on everybody's whereabouts so as to seem less suspicious. It's much harder to see the little serious black dot moving across the map when he's got to siphon out the entire student and faculty body. He does, however, discover that Potter owns an invisibility cloak, which might come in handy for hiding whatever remains of Black's body when he does kill him. This combination of map and invisibility cloak seems to inspire James Potter to commit what he calls pranks, and what Remus considers childish crimes. Remus goes along on a couple of them, hoping they might function as convenient cover for Black's accidental murder. Say, they charm a toilet to explode and it just happens to go off while Black has his face over it. If Black is decapitated by an exploding toilet in a prank planned by Potter, surely Remus can't be blamed for his death. And if his head's a complete splattered mess, no one will notice if some of it goes missing. The pranks, however, result in nothing more than detention and Potter dubbing them the Marauders. A stupid name for a crime syndicate. At the start of his second year, Lyle and Hope wave him off as he boards the Hogwarts Express at Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Dumbledore never gave a flat-out no for summer murder, so Remus assisted Lyle on a couple of cold cases and reaped the fruits of his labor. And by fruit he means human flesh. Actual fruit is nasty. He boards the train feeling more satiated than he had all first year. Nevertheless, when he opens the marauder's carriage— he's absolutely bowled over by the scent of Sirius Black. He smells more evil than ever. Plus, seated next to him, is a smaller Sirius Black. Remus sniffs the air. Yes, this one carries the scent of evil too, and yet for some inexplicable reason, Remus finds it less compelling. Sirius introduces the smaller Black as Regulus. Remus cocks his head, taking him in. He will kill him too, but he can already tell that he'll enjoy it far less. This time, rather than sailing in those god-awful canoes from the train station to Hogwarts, they ride in some quite comfortable horse-drawn carriages. Remus scratches one of the horses behind its ears. Potter and Pettigrew once again look at him like he's mental, while Black appears horrified. How can you touch that? Black asks. Remus shrugs. It's not like they're evil. How can you tell? They look evil. Well, they don't smell evil. What are you two on about? Potter asks. The winged horses. Black explains. What winged horses? Remus exchanges a look with Black. When Potter's out of earshot, he whispers. I think he needs to get his prescription checked. Black giggles. Remus frowns. He meant that quite seriously. Clearly Potter's glasses are failing him if he can't make out full-grown horses, and with wings. It's amazing he's able to enter the carriage at all. After that incident, Black seems to think they share some sort of common bond and befriends him further, which Remus only accepts because of that age-old adage, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Perhaps because of this friendship, Black figures out first that Remus is a werewolf and practically has a panic attack while confessing that he knows and James has grown suspicious too and wants to confront Remus. Remus shrugs. Yeah, so what? Black looks hurt. I didn't tell him, I swear. It wouldn't bother me if you had. You don't care if he knows that you're a werewolf. Why would I care about that? Um, it doesn't bother you that you're a... Remus blanches. He'd never considered it a detriment. 
In fact, he figured everyone else must be wandering about disappointed that they're not werewolves. Imagine having such miserable senses of smell and hearing, or being unable to see horses like Potter, and to not be able to distinguish between good and evil through one deep inhale. To not have a single night out of every month where you absolutely rule the animal kingdom. To not know the taste of blood and flesh or crunch of bones because you think chocolate frogs are delicious. Good lord, no. Do others feel differently about this whole werewolf business or is it just black? Probably just black. Maybe he knows that Remus knows that he's evil and this whole befriending thing is really black keeping his enemies closer. He's craftier than Remus thought. Black only solidifies that suspicion when he crawls into Remus's bed that night and asks to see his werewolf bite. He's definitely up to something, but Remus loves his werewolf bite so he proudly displays it. Honestly, if his dad hadn't told him crop tops were not men's wear, he'd show it off to the whole damn school. Black acts like it's some big hush-hush secret though, further solidifying this bond of friendship. Remus rolls his eyes. He's no longer sure who is double-crossing whom. Their third year is when Remus encourages Black to visit him in the Shrieking Shack via the Whomping Willow, figuring it's a win-win situation. Either the Willow gets Black, and hopefully Remus can track down the body before it's removed from Hogwarts, or Black makes it past the Willow and Remus gets him all to himself. Can't blame Remus for what happens when he's a werewolf. Sadly, Black doesn't take him up on the suggestion although it does seem to light some sort of spark of curiosity in the boy, and he becomes even sneakier. Clearly he and Potter and Pettigrew are plotting something. Remus is thrilled. If Black convinces them to join the dark side, then that's three bodies for Remus once he turns seventeen. He considers how he'd feel eating Pettigrew and Potter. About how he'd feel about most of the usual petty killers he's caught. Tasty but nothing special. If he kills all three of them, he'll definitely eat black last. For dessert, so to speak. Every morning he wakes up and sniffs the air to see if Potter and Pettigrew have been turned, but so far, no dice. Their fourth year, Black makes the Gryffindor Quidditch team. Remus attends games in the hopes that Black might fall off his broom and break his neck. Sometimes he notices that Black is rather a good player. He can't take his eyes off of him. It's their fifth year that things get interesting. Black boards the train smelling extra evil and seems rather twitchy around him. Perhaps he's grown suspicious of Remus. Remus figures he'd better prepare in case he has to defend himself. He borrows a knife from the Great Hall and sharpens his toothbrush into a shank, which he takes to carrying in his pocket at all times. When the marauders ask about it, he extols the importance of oral hygiene. From then on, Black always has minty fresh breath. Black takes all his same classes, so the only time he's able to get away from him is during the full moon, but then to da. The day before he's set to transform, Black, Potter, and Pettigrew pop into a dog, a stag, and a rat. Wolf time is his alone time, plus he'd figured out how to nudge open the door to the shrieking shack and he made a serious dent in the Hogsmeade criminal population dragging men out of dark alleys and back into the forbidden forest where he'd snack on them until dawn approached. Now how will he have fun? The next morning he begrudgingly admits that he did have quite a bit of fun with the dog, who at least flopped on his back and exposed his belly, showing better sense than the Pomeranian.
One day Black sends him a present in the form of the Slytherin boy, Severus Snape, traipsing down the tunnel towards the shrieking shack. Ooh. Remus can smell him from inside the shack. He's in werewolf form. It won't be his fault when he eats Snape. He's salivating just thinking about it. Salivating thinking that Black would give him a gift. So kind. Maybe he's misjudged him. But then Potter goes and ruins it all by telling Dumbledore on Black. Sadly, tattletailing is not a crime or Potter would be a goner. Instead Remus thumbs up the toothbrush shank in his pocket and glares at Potter. I'm sorry, Mooney. Black apologizes later, abashed. Don't be. Bastard deserves to die. But you could have gotten kicked out of Hogwarts. Remus thinks on that. Good point. My parents would have been mad. You can try again next year. When I'm 17. Black blinks at him. But after the Snape gift, just when Remus is thinking that maybe he won't kill Black, just maim him in some way so that he's incapacitated. Say, eat all of his limbs. Black reveals himself to be more of a criminal mastermind than Remus ever suspected. It's the night of some party in the Gryffindor common room and Black is plastered. Or at least that's what Remus thought. Remus is not terribly keen on the loss of control that comes with drinking, so he'd headed back up to their dorm room early, passing Black on the stairs. He's sixteen now, close to being of age, and Black smells so delectably evil. The scent is overwhelming. He can't think straight. He reaches for the toothbrush shank in his pocket and grabs at Black's shirt and... Black kisses him. He tastes minty fresh. Black smashes himself so close that Remus has no means of extracting the toothbrush from his pocket, and in fact, wriggling his hand around in his pocket trying to get at the toothbrush only seems to encourage Black to press into him harder. Clever lad. When Black pulls away with a gasp and runs down the stairs, apologies echoing up behind him, well, Remus just stands there stunned. Clearly Black is trying to kill him too. He'd orchestrated the kiss to distract Remus while simultaneously getting close enough to stab him. That must have been what Remus felt pressed against him. Black had a shank too, and much larger than Remus's toothbrush. He'll have to tell his dad. Black's onto him and preparing to kill him. He'll have to be disposed of this year, whether Remus is of age or not. However, when he reaches the Aori and thinks about Black's particular killing technique, he can't quite bring himself to write Lyle. He spends the rest of the year watching his back, but there are no repeat incidents. That is until sixth year. Sixth year when Remus thinks he'll pass out on the train, Black smells so overwhelmingly evil and he only has to wait until March 10th, his 17th birthday, to kill him. He can't stop staring at Black, thinking about what he'll do to him when he turns 17. How he'll kill him. Which parts he'll eat first. He keeps catching Black's eye, who's staring too, only every time their eyes meet, Black looks away and flushes. You'd think for someone who smelled like such a murderer, he'd have mastered his game face. The altercation begins in the dorm room. Pettigrew and Potter are out, and Remus is studying on his bed while Black listens to his records. Remus is trying to write a coherent essay for care of magical creatures about carnivorous magical creatures and why they should be excluded from traditional wizarding eating values, but the music just grates. 
Remus is certain if he were to play this record backwards, he would hear Satan himself coaxing Black to evil. He glares. He huffs. Black notices nothing. Finally, Remus throws his textbook across the room. Now, if he'd been aiming for Black, not only would he have hit him, he would have killed him. He's been trained by the CIA. He can easily kill with a textbook to the temple. But Black doesn't know that, so he shouts. You could have killed me. Ha! Remus wishes. Then Black's on him. Surprisingly quickly. Perhaps he's trained by the CIA too. Unlikely though, the way he seems more keen on tickling Remus than, say, punching the bone of his nose up into his brain with the base of his palm. Fortunately, the CIA, or maybe it was the FBI, trained Remus in tickle torture too, so he knows how to get out of these situations without revealing information. He crushes Sirius's hips between his thighs, rolling them over, straddling him, and pinning his arms above his head. It's when he's trying to decide if it would be easiest to smother him with a pillow or strangle him with a twisted-up bedsheet that he realizes that Black is shifting beneath him, really more like pushing up in a very distracting manner. He's definitely got that shiv on him again, only this time Remus should be able to get at it. He transfers Black's wrists to one hand and undoes his fly, feeling around for the weapon. Black moans. He actually moans. Amateur. But Remus's hand isn't quite big enough to secure both of Black's wrists, so Black's able to get one hand free and he begins rooting around for Remus's toothbrush shank, which is in the pocket of his robe hanging from a hook on the wall. Perhaps he should tell him, or perhaps not because, for some odd reason, when Black doesn't turn up the toothbrush, he grasps both of their cocks in his hand. He's stroking them both, his head thrown back, and from here Remus can see all the delicate bones in his throat. He's watching the artery just below Sirius's jaw throb when he comes. Black quickly gets up and excuses himself to the bathroom. Remus flops back on his bed. Damn it. The CIA did not train him for that diversion tactic. From then on, Black's after him. Bathroom stalls, broom cupboards, empty classrooms, even their beds. And his techniques keep improving. He casts silencing spells so no one will hear Remus scream. Of course, that works both ways, so no one hears when Sirius screams either, which is more often than not. Blacks learn to strip him to be sure he's not carrying weaponry. But again, two can play at that game, so Remus makes sure Black's not packing either, and well, there are certain places on Black's body where he might fit a weapon, so Remus checks there too, using several fingers just to be certain. Black gets him up against a desk in the charms classroom and just when Remus thinks he's a goner, that the way Black has a hold of his hips means he's figured out some way to crush his kidneys using only his thumbs. Black sinks to his knees and takes his cock in his mouth, and not to eat it either, just to suck on it, like he's worshipping it. Remus wraps his fingers around Black's neck and thinks how he'll have to get him in this position again come March. Remus is impressed. The fingers around Black's neck don't seem to scare him. If anything, he sucks harder, taking in more of Remus, working his own cock with one hand. The visual is distracting Remus from remembering to strangle Sirius. He shoves him off, pushing him to his back on the floor. Maybe MI6 trained Black in this cock-sucking technique, in which case, Remus should know it too. He's thrilled when he turns out to be a natural, 
and even more delighted when Sirius comes in his mouth. It's delicious. He's never gotten to eat any part of Sirius before and now it turns out, not only can he, Sirius will let him. If nothing else, he has something to snack on until March. On the morning of his seventeenth birthday, Black wakes him up in his bed by taking his cock in his mouth. Remus plays with his hair thinking, today is the day. Black looks up at him and says, I want to give you a present. Is this a threat? Does he know? Remus will see how this unfolds. But instead of a gun or a knife or even some rope, Black gives him a bottle of lube. Remus looks at Black curiously as Black rolls over onto his stomach. Weapons check then. The lube will certainly work better than spit, but it's suspicious that Black offered it to him. Remus fingers him open but, of course, finds nothing. No one willingly submits to a weapons check if they're packing. Black's been moaning and he's rather damp. Remus brushes some of the sweaty hair from the back of his neck and touches all of the soft, shankable spots on his body, the artery that throbs beneath his jaw, his left side, just below his ribs, the backs of his thighs. I want you to fuck me, Black murmurs half into the pillow. Sorry, Remus asks, certain he misheard. I want you to fuck me. This time Black meets his eyes, says it almost defiantly. Remus considers him, wondering what trick he could possibly have up his sleeve. He racks his brain, all of his ministry training, his CIA training, his FBI training, but he can't come up with anything. No matter which way he looks at it, it seems like he will be the one with the advantage. I mean, depending on the position, but if Black's leaving that up to him. Excuse me. Let me go get my toothbrush, Remus says. Black looks at him like he's mental, but doesn't say anything when he leaves and returns with his toothbrush shank, setting it beside them on the bed. Do you want me to brush my teeth? Black asks. No, I like the way you taste. It's a simple statement of fact, but it seems to inspire Black to roll over, pull him down, and aggressively kiss him all the while murmuring about fucking while removing articles of Remus's clothing and kicking them down to the end of the bed. While he's doing this, Remus considers various positions, settling on from behind, where he should easily be able to stab Black through the side with the toothbrush, and it will be difficult for Black to use his arms to stop him. He rolls Black onto his stomach once more, pulls his ass up towards him, and then brackets Black's legs with his own for good measure. That way he won't be able to kick. Again, Remus is impressed by Black's training. Rather than be intimidated by these aggressive tactics, it's almost as if he likes them. Remus thoroughly lubes up and works his way into Black's hole. It's slow going. He's so tight and he doesn't want to hurt him, just kill and eat him. He finds himself kissing the back of Black's neck, down his spine, rubbing his thumbs into those dimples above his ass playing with the head of his cock, until Black relaxes. The problem, Remus discovers, as they figure out a rhythm, is how good it feels. He tries reaching for the toothbrush shank, but he can barely let go of Sirius's hips. It's like he's holding on for dear life. He'll have to forego the shank and use his teeth. He pulls Sirius up, so he's practically seated on his lap, distracts him by stroking his cock, and then bites into his neck. Forgetting he's not a werewolf right now, he usually only kills with his teeth as a werewolf, so the bite only breaks skin. 
Still, the coppery taste of Sirius's blood coats his lips and tongue and he's gone, coming hard while Sirius calls out Mooney and he feels warmth spilling over his fingers. He licks the blood off Sirius's neck, brings his hand to his mouth and licks to come up to, and then for good measure, lies Sirius down on his back so he can clean his sticky cock and stomach with his tongue. Sirius giggles beneath him like he wasn't within a hair's breadth of death. Sirius got lucky. This time. Toujours pure. The black family motto. The purest of the pure bloods. Now everyone thinks pure blood means no interrelations with muggles, but like many of the sacred twenty-eight, the blacks know it's more than that. As far back as anyone can remember, no, further than that, as far back as the ritual has existed, as far back as the black family tree extends, the blacks have been participating in the purity ritual. Sirius began when he was eleven, the summer before he went to Hogwarts. That wasn't the first time he got a boner. Those had been happening since he was a baby. Really, they're just bodily reactions. But that was when his boners became directed and intentional. That was when he began using up all of the hot water during his showers. That was when Walburga caught him lying on the floor reading a book. It was just one thousand magical herbs and fungi. But something about stamens caught his attention and he absentmindedly began rubbing himself gently against the carpet. While Berga was horrified to discover her eleven-year-old pure-blood son humping the floor and told Orion it was time for the talk and the ritual. Orion's version of the talk was quite baffling. Something about when a wizard loves a witch very much. Sirius tuned out. Nothing about wizards loving wizards so the whole thing clearly had very little to do with him. The ritual, however, was not to be tuned out. See, to be truly pure, toujours pure, always pure, not only must your blood be uncontaminated, your thoughts must be pure too. But there is no way to keep your thoughts pure. Various religious sects have tried different measures, abstinence, starvation, hair shirts, other forms of asceticism and bodily mortification. No dice. Sometimes it makes it worse. So the blacks, and several other notable pure-blood wizarding families, relied on the purity ritual. It's a very simple ritual. You kill and bathe in the blood of a newborn muggle infant. Sure there are some spells and totems involved, but otherwise anyone can do it. At age 11, with Walburga and Orion's assistance, Sirius killed his first newborn muggle infant and bathed in its blood. The problem is, it doesn't last. When he was eleven, the spell held for a few months, but by the time he hit fifteen, he maybe got a week of pure thoughts out of it. Rooming with the hot werewolf boy didn't help matters either. If he hadn't been living at Hogwarts, Walburga and Orion would have had him killing babies on a weekly basis. Fortunately for the muggle infant population, Sirius did go to Hogwarts. Thus, he only sacrificed one baby a year, maybe two if he went home for Christmas. Sirius wasn't stupid. From day one he could tell that his new roommate, Remus Lupin, the boy who ate his letters, was taking too keen an interest in him, but he didn't figure out why until he began recording the days Lupin got sick. Once he matched them up with the moon and concluded that Lupin was a werewolf, he read everything he could about werewolves, their acute sense of smell, almost more like a bloodhound's or those drug-sniffing dogs. He noted the way Lupin always sniffed him, 
especially when he'd board the Hogwarts Express after summer or Christmas when Sirius was fresh off a ritual killing. What he couldn't figure out was why Lupin salivated so much, too. That is until he caught him in the kitchen begging food off the house elves. Lupin was always hungry, but Sirius figured he asked for sandwiches or extra pudding or something. No. The house elves were in the midst of dressing a deer and Lupin was happily collecting all of the guts and whatnot in a bucket. Then he sat in the far corner of the kitchen and began gnawing on a heart. Didn't even use a fork. There was blood running down his chin and fingers and chest. He'd taken off his robe so as not to get it bloody. Sirius was fascinated. He'd seen himself in a mirror after bathing in muggle infant blood and he looked quite similar. Blood on his face and chest, maybe not so much on his mouth. It made Sirius feel, well, normal. It also helped Sirius put two and two together. Lupin could smell something on him. Maybe the blood, maybe the killing, and he wanted Sirius. Wanted him the way he wanted that dear heart. Sirius vowed to keep an eye on Lupin after that. He was clearly a threat, either a threat of exposure, or a threat to Sirius's life. Sirius didn't particularly care if the Black family was exposed for their barbaric, antiquated practices, but he didn't want to go to Azkaban for the ritualized killing of multiple babies, especially when it wasn't really his fault. It's not like Wilberga and Orion gave him a choice in the matter, and he preferred to stay alive too, thank you very much. He befriended Lupin. He encouraged James and Peter to join him in becoming anime guy so he could watch Lupin even when he was a werewolf. Sirius was horrified when James transformed into a stag. All he could think of was Lupin and that dear heart. But there was no talking James out of it, no matter how many other, better animals he suggested. Why would I want to be a platypus? James asked. Sirius shrugged. Because marsupials are cool. Then one night... He was a bit drunk. He more than befriended Lupin. That gave him an idea. Perhaps the best way to keep an eye on Lupin, and in turn, to keep himself alive, would be to make Lupin fall in love with him. He set about his plan. He knew he could be quite charming when he wanted to be, and it was rather easy with Remus. He'd never met anyone who was so enthusiastically into sucking him off, or who would happily eat his ass for hours. Remus lavished attention on parts of his body that he never even considered sexual before. His toes, the backs of his knees, his armpits. His lips were always raw, his dick pleasurably sore. He knew he was walking a fine line with Remus's fingers around his neck. But he'd never come so hard in his life as when he knew Remus could kill him but was choosing not to. Perhaps that was the reason his plan backfired. Well, maybe not backfired. He was fairly certain Remus was in love with him, but he hadn't meant to fall in love too. But then on Remus's seventeenth birthday, Remus had set that shank next to them on the bed as they fucked for the first time, and Sirius lost all mental capacity to protect himself once Remus was inside him. He'd had the fleeting thought, If I have to die, this is the way I want to go. But instead, Remus bit him. When he'd rolled Sirius's limp body over on the bed, There was blood on his mouth. Sirius's blood on his mouth. It was the hottest thing he'd ever seen, and he knew, he just knew, that they were both killers and that he was in love. But maybe he'd found a loophole to the killer's part. Mooney, 
I have something to tell you, Sirius says. Hem. Remus had been admiring the bite marks on Sirius's stomach and thighs, tracing his fingers over them, some faded, some fresh. When Sirius doesn't continue, however, he looks up, meets his gray eyes, giving him his full attention. Well, not quite. He does pick up one of his fingers and puts it in his mouth. Silencia. Sirius points his wand at the curtains on the four-poster with the hand that's not in Remus's mouth. You already cast the silencing charm before we started. Remus mumbles around the finger. I just wanted to be sure. I want you to know something about me. Are you listening? Remus nods, scooting his head up more so he can lie next to Sirius on the pillow. I've killed approximately ten babies. Remus stops sucking on the finger, although he doesn't release it. He hadn't expected such a direct confession of murder. I've stopped. Sirius continues. I'm seventeen now. I'm of age. Wahlberger and Orion have no say over what I do anymore, so I'm stopping. I killed my last baby the summer before sixth year. Remus chews on Sirius's finger, mulling this over. Will he still smell as good now? I also know that you want to eat me, Sirius says. Remus's jaw falls open. I don't. How? He sputters. Mooney, please. Sirius wiggles the finger that only just popped out of Remus's mouth. Then he gestures down his body where marks from Remus's teeth form constellations across his torso and ass and thighs. They avoid too many on his neck since those attract attention. If I let you keep doing what you're doing to me, will you stop trying to kill me? Remus frowns, pulls Sirius closer, gnaws on his clavicle while considering. If he leaves Sirius alive, he can still suck his cock, still drink his cum, still taste his blood. If he kills him, all of that goes away. Sure he gets to eat him, but just once. It's like getting to have an appetizer every day instead of a full course meal one time. When he thinks about it that way, the choice seems obvious. Okay, but can I still sometimes try to kill you, but not really mean it? Sure. I'd like that. Really? Yes. Can I kill other people? Like who? Your brother. Only if he becomes a Death Eater. Fair enough. How about Voldemort? Yes. What about serial killers? Sirius frowns. He is, after all, a serial killer. But then again, this is the 70s and there are quite a few of them out there. Some really problematic ones too. Will you run it by me first? Sure. Remus snuggles into his neck, and Sirius kisses his curls. Remus's next words come out soft and muffled, so much so that Sirius has to ask him to repeat them. Do you like it? What? When I eat you. Their eyes meet. I love it. Can I eat your ass now? You mean may you eat my ass now? May I eat your ass now? You may. So Remus does. Finite. Thanks for listening to this text-to-speech podfic composed by Burning Aurora.